You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And we are in week 2 of our series, God's Story, My Story. Um, if you missed last week, you're, you're only in, you know, we're only one weekend. I'm pretty sure you'll be able to pick it up just fine. And uh, by the way, if, there, if you need a Bible, there are some in the seatbacks in front of you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word all the time. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible permanently, uh, why don't you just take that and keep it because it's our gift to you. Um, so uh, the whole purpose of this series, we're going through uh, the whole storyline of the Bible. And the, and the whole goal of this series is that we would be able to find our place in God's unfolding story of salvation through Jesus Christ. And I mentioned last week that I kind of mean that in two ways. It's a little bit of a play on words. That that we would, first of all, be able to find our place when we open up this book. Uh, That we would know where we are in the story and that we would be able to find our path from wherever we are reading to Jesus Christ, to His life and death and resurrection, and see how it's all fulfilled, it's all pointing to Him. But secondly, I also mean that personally. That we would be able to answer this big question in life that how has God written me into His story? What place do I play? What role do I play in all of this big grand story of of God's salvation, of, of His history, and um, his story is so much bigger than me, but by His grace, He has allowed us to be a part of His story. And last week, we sort of got our origin story. How, how did we come into existence? And so, uh, think about this for a second, like a comic book origin story. I don't know if any of you like uh, like superhero movies. Uh, anybody like superhero movies? I like superhero movies. Yeah, don't leave me alone. That's right. Some of you like it. You're just closet nerds. It's okay. And... Uh, you know, uh, there's some really good stories in there. Some of you I know went to Avengers Endgame. I still haven't seen it yet. Don't spoil it for me. Um, so if you if you wa- like superhero movies or you watched, uh, you read comic books growing up, which I never did. I just watched the movies. That's the way I handle books in general. Um, but superheroes always have an origin story. They have an origin story. How, how did they come to be super? And so you might be familiar with like Spider-Man got bit by a radioactive spider. And um, let's see here. Who else? Uh, let's see here. Uh, Captain America. He was a, a homeless orphan and uh, he wanted to sign up to fight in World War II, but he was scrawny. And so they injected him with super serum, right? You remember that? And, and uh, so he has an origin story. But not only do the superheroes have origin stories, but also so do the supervillains. And their story is usually designed to give you some sort of sense of empathy for them. So they suffer some injustice or some great deal of harm at the, at the hands of society, and it kind of helps you realize why they're a villain. So, so Joker from Batman, apparently uh, he was um, really poor and he was just trying to feed his family, so he got in with this band of criminals, and, uh, and they, they hired him to do this job of stealing, and while he was stealing... 
uh, he fell into this vat of chemicals and his, his face was bleached and he, his hair turned green and he got this weird smile. And then, all, you know, during all of that, they, they actually, the same gang that hired him killed his family. And, and so you kind of like begin to have this sense of empathy for him. Like, yeah, after going through all of that, um, you, know, you know, maybe I understand why you're a supervillain. And, and I think a lot of times people think of their origin stories kind of like that. We think that our origin story is that we are generally good, that we are generally powerful, that we are generally smart, that we are the superheroes of our own story. And if there is anything wrong with us, any character flaw, we're willing to recognize that every superhero has a character flaw. It's because of something that was done to us. Something that was taken from us. Some injustice or suffering that we endured to make us this way. But as we get into Genesis 3 through 11 even, uh, we see that we are the source of our own fallenness. And let me be clear from the beginning, there are injustices that are done to us that shape us in certain ways. And that is part of the tragedy of the fallen world that we'll talk about today. And I don't want to minimize that pain for a second. But until we can come to grips with the fact that we are part of the problem and not merely a victim, we're never going to be able to see our way to the Savior. Last week we saw that every single one of our stories begins with a good God who created everything by His Word. And that can be confusing to us because when we look around, things don't always look so good. So like the hurricane Dorian just destroyed the Bahamas and, and they're just left in utter devastation. The tropical paradise that is no more. This, week's mark, this week marked the 18th anniversary of 9-11. And it still brought tears to my eyes to watch the the replays and hear the recordings of final calls to family and, and the 911 operators and the, the air traffic control towers. Just this week, a, a well-respected pastor, author, and mental health advocate took his own life after battling depression. And it just leaves us asking, like, why? Why does all of this happen? Is there any hope? If God is such a good God, how could He let it get this bad? And our only hope in the face of those confusing questions is to allow the Bible to shape our thinking and our understanding of man's sin and God's grace. Our only hope is a Christ-centered, biblical worldview that sees God as the hero of the story and not us. Today, we're going to see our real life origin stories move beyond the goodness of Eden to the descent of the destruction of sin. And sin would seek to destroy everything. It would destroy everything that we could see, everything that we could experience, but God's plan cannot be overcome. We sang about it this morning, right? He has the final word. In fact, our, our sin was no surprise for him. His plan included salvation from sin from before the foundations of the world, the Bible tells us. 
And so as we continue in the story today, I want you to see that the fall destroys everything in your story, but God promises to cover and conquer sin for those who turn to Him. The fall destroys everything in your story, but God promises to cover and conquer sin for those who turn to Him. Just to remind you of the context a little bit again, uh, God has created man and woman. He's placed them in a garden. He's given them every tree of the garden to eat except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which would seem like a pretty good deal. Except that you know how it is when you are told that you can't have something, right? Like, that's the thing that you have to have. And so with that backdrop, look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of your eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We'll stop there for now. So, all of that seems fairly insignificant, doesn't it? Like, like it's just a piece of fruit. It's just a little mistake. We'll fix it. We'll get over it. It's all good. But we're going to see that this is sin. And sin is never small. It's never insignificant. It is always devastating. And if we're going to understand our story, we have to understand the devastating nature of sin. So we're going to look at the essence of the fall, which is sin. It's not just brokenness. The fall is not just that we make mistakes sometimes. It's not just that... that Things are a little bit hard. The fall, the essence of the fall is sin. It's an attempt to be like God, to take His place, to live without His rule, which is by definition rebellion against God in both our activity and our nature. And here we see uh, the moment that sin entered the world. This begins in verse 1 when we're introduced to the closest thing to a supervillain in the story, the serpent. The serpent, he's described as crafty, the most crafty of all the creatures. Uh, The word simply means wise or shrewd. And in fact, throughout the Bible, it's actually not a bad word. it's, It's not necessarily a negative word, but we see that his wisdom is applied to doing evil. He loves what is evil instead of what is good. 
Now, we wonder, who is this serpent? And we can have all sorts of questions about him, but really, in Genesis, we don't get to know very much. We know that he's a created being. He is in some way like the other beasts of the field, and in some way he's different. We don't know exactly what he looks like. Everybody wants to know what he looks like. Was he a snake? Was he a dragon? Was he this? Was he that? Listen, that's not the point of the text. And so don't get so sidetracked in all the things that aren't the point of the text and stay focused on the things that are the point of the text. There's a reason why the author didn't give us those details. Apparently he can talk. But that's about all that we can get. And we do get the sense that he wants to undermine God's plan. It's like someone in a horror film. I don't know how many horror films. I'm not a big horror film guy. But, but like the, 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 the person, that, the, the villain, the, the serial killer or whatever it is that leads the person down the steps into the basement and you're just sitting there watching it all play out and you're like, don't go in the basement. Like we all know, we've seen this movie a thousand times. Don't go in the basement. So as we're reading that, it's kind of like that. Like we're just like, don't do it, don't do it. And then every time we read it, the ending is the same. I want us to see here a pattern of that descent into the sin, that walk down the steps into the basement of sin. And the first step in the descent into sin is, is detachment. Look at verse 24 and 25 of the previous chapter. Chapter 2, 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So there's this togetherness. There's this innocence. There's this relationship between man and woman and God that is complete and beautiful. But then look at verse 2 of chapter 3. He, the serpent, said to the woman. Now it's interesting, in verse 6, it says that the man was with her. And I've always pictured Eve as kind of alone in the, in the initial setting of this, and then Adam kind of comes along and is like, like oblivious to everything, and she like tricks him and hands him the apple, and is like, oh yeah, by the way, that's from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like, I guess as a man, that's my problem, and assuming worse of the woman... But Adam's with her, and yet the serpent talks to her and not to both of them. Where is God, by the way, in this part of the story? And I believe from the curse and from the way that the New Testament writers reflect on this story, what is being shown is that the serpent is striking at the bond between the man and the woman and the order of the relationship between them. That, that she is his helpmate. And he's detaching her from, and he's detaching them from one another. And there's a sense in which he deceives her in particular in order to overturn what God created as good. And the man is complicit in this. He, he's been there the whole time. He falls right into the serpent's trap. He's, he's passive and he doesn't take responsibility. And he tries to shift the blame. And he's unsuccessful in the end. And the enemy wants to get you detached. He wants to get you detached from the bond of relationships that God established. He's going to 
puff you up. He's going to isolate you. He's going to convince you to take on a role that you've not been given. He's going to convince you to sleep on the role that you have been given. He's going to make you think that you know better than everyone else. He's going to make you think that no one else is out for your best interest and you better look out for your own. He will do anything that he can to detach you from the order of God-given relationships in your life. And that's true in your marriage. That's true in the church. That's true of, of godly counselors around you. The enemy wants to detach you. Don't let him. The first step of the descent into sin is detachment, from which, which then provides the opportunity for the second step, which is deception. Deception. Once we're detached, deception is fairly easy. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so let me ask you, maybe some of you are reading uh, Genesis chapter 2 this week, and you can recall back, uh, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Yes, thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs down, right. There you go. It, we, if we go back to chapter 2, we see that the answer is no. God did not say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. But, but it's a leading question, and it sows seeds of doubt into the woman's mind. It's subtle, and it's effective. And that, that's the nature of deception. It's subtle, it's crafty, it, it knows right from wrong, so that it can get as close to the right, as close to the truth as possible, without actually getting there in order to sell the lie. So the woman tries to correct him, but, but she doesn't exactly get it right either. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. In chapter 2, God never says anything about touching. She imagines the command as more strict than it really is. You see, the enemy doesn't necessarily need you to agree with him. All he needs to do is to deceive you enough that it gets you off of that precise truth of God. How many sins in my life have come from not believing the truth of God fully or imagining His law as less good than it truly is? And so the deceiver whispers his final lie. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. In other words, the lie is God is holding out on you. He's withholding something that you need. He's killing your joy. Your best is not in God being God, but in you being God. And once you disobey, then you will know perfectly. Then you will live fully. Have you ever heard that lie whispered to you? Once you cast off God, then you will be your greatest self. Now, if the woman would have stopped to think about this, she would have remembered that she was already created to be like God. Not that she was God, but remember, she was created in the image of God. God had already given her everything that was good, everything that was needed for flourishing. She, she had been given the ability to think and choose, and she already had the wisdom that God wanted her to have. So God had not withheld anything from her or from her husband that they needed. But they were tempted to think that He had. 
They were tempted to believe that they needed something more than they could obtain. I'm sorry, they needed something more and that they could obtain goodness apart from God. And so we may ask, like, if they didn't need the tree, and if they weren't supposed to eat of the tree, then why did God put the tree there in the first place? Because i got to admit, like, even when I read this, and I know the lens through which I, uh, I, I should read it, I'm looking at this saying, but the tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That sounds like a good thing, and it does sound like God is holding out on them. And even though I know that that is the, the source of the deception, I'm thinking, why is it there? What's the point of it? Is this just a test? Is this just God torturing? Is this God tempting? We know that's not true because the rest of the Bible tells us that's not true, right? And I believe that this was to show that they had all of the wisdom that they needed if they just obeyed His command and trusted His provision. That He was the source of true wisdom, not the tree. He's the source of true wisdom, not the tree. The tree would go on to prove that they could not simply reach out and grab wisdom by following after their own desires. He put the tree there to show that the way to get what we need is to run toward God's commands, not away from them. And they were tempted to think that they could become like God by following their own way rather than just bearing His image that He had already put in them and trusting His way. And this flicker of desire, like a match light, goes off in her heart that becomes a flame that consumes her. And once the enemy detaches us from relationship and he deceives us, he merely needs to wait until our desires get the best of us. It's the third step down into the basement of sin, desire. Desire. You see, for deception to take root, it has to be something that we desire more than God. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, at face value, Eve's sin doesn't look like much. She ate a piece of fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat. I'm pretty sure most of us have done that by age two. And we could be tempted to think that that God goes a little overkill with the curse that He's about to lay down. But we have to see what was at the heart of the deception. It's always at the heart where our desires and our motivations lie. The, The promise was that she could be like God without having God. Without going through God. Without reflecting His image. It's interesting, up until this point, it's always God who saw that His creation was good. But now Eve puts herself in that judgment place, and she says that the thing that God said is not good for me sure looks good to me. I see that it is good. It was a delight to her eyes. It was desired to make one wise, to be, as the serpent put it, like God. And so she ate it. This is not just eating a piece of fruit. This is mutiny. This is treason. This is a coup attempt on the very throne 
God. Every sin has its root in the desire that we could be like God in ways that God did not intend for us to be like Him. So just think through a catalog of sins for me. Idolatry is the desire to live for something that we can create and control rather than the one who created and controls us. Pride is the desire to be given glory rather than giving God all glory and living out of our identity in Him. Lust and gluttony are the desires to use created things and created people for our own purposes rather than using them for the purposes that God intended and to fuel our relationship with God and their relationship with God. Stealing is the desire to provide for my own needs and my own wants without going to the one who owns all things. Anger is often the desire to get people to submit to our control and our standards instead of God's. Perfectionism is the desire to be without fault or limitation, just like God. Working without rest is the desire to never need slumber or sleep like God does. Unbelief is the desire to have the breath of life while ignoring the breather of life. And if you want to understand sin, you have to understand your desires. That is so important to understanding your story. It's not just about rearranging the things that you do and the fruit that's out on the limbs. It's about rearranging your heart. It's about understanding your desires, what motivates you, why you do what you do. And James wrote, uh, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The problem is not that a temptation has crossed your path. The problem is not even in that particular temptation itself. The problem is the desire in your heart to be like God. And James says that desire, when it is conceived, when it is given a home to to nourish it and let it grow, it's going to give birth to sin. And sin brings forth death. That's devastation. That's destruction. The final step in the basement of sin is destruction. Always. Every time. It's never leading anywhere good. Don't go down the stairs. In the day of you eat of it, you will surely die, says God. You will not surely die, says the serpent. Now, who is correct? Because at first glance, it actually looks like the serpent is correct, right? Like we kind of expect them to bite the apple, breathe their last, story over. Ends of Genesis chapter 3. In fact, we never get Genesis chapter 3 because there's no one there to write it. But as we read, she ate and then she gave some to her husband and and he was with her and he ate and their eyes are opened and and it sounds like the serpent is telling the truth. They, They become wise. They know right from wrong. But notice what that then brings. Not unrivaled delight. Not more oneness between them than they ever had imagined before. 
Not power and glory beyond their wildest dreams. No, 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 it brings shame. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths, which seems kind of a pathetic first thing to do after you've just become like God. We're going to see that the death God meant when He promised a consequence for eating of the tree was much more far-reaching than just no longer breathing. See, Adam and Eve were actually created for eternity. To live with God forever in the garden. And so so the sense of death that, that, that God was talking about had to be something that was more eternal in nature. More eternal in its ongoing destruction. But before we get there, I just want you to understand this. The descent into sin is the same staircase that has been walked billions of times in the story of the world since that first sin. It's the same descent into the basement with the serial killer that we take every single time we sin. Every single time. Detachment from the order of relationships that God has established. Deception that God calls that calls God's truth into question. Desire that is then aroused by that deception, followed by destruction. And the details sometimes differ in little subtle ways. But check it out in your own story. The pattern remains the same. We need to become aware of the pattern so that we can see when it's happening. We can turn and run back up the stairs into the strong arms of our Savior who deals with our enemy. But maybe you're like, well, if it's really that simple then, if the pattern just keeps on repeating, then then why can't we just recognize it? Why can't we just take a shovel along, hit the enemy over the head, and be done with the whole thing? He goes down to the basement, we come out, we're good. And the reason is because the effects of the fall are that great. The pattern is not only in the sinful actions you commit, it's hardwired into you since you were born of Adam's seed. And so it's not enough to know the pattern. We need a Savior who can break the pattern. The story of the Bible is not merely you breaking the pattern of sin. The story of the Bible is a Savior who breaks the pattern of sin. But before we get there, let's look at the effects of the destruction. Okay. The effect of the fall is fear, fight, frustration, futility, and fatality. Fear, fight, frustration, futility, and fatality. Those are the things that we're going to talk about here. Look at verse 8. Give you a second to write that down. Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the first effect of the fall that we see is this. It's the fear of the Creator. Fear of the Creator. 
Now, I don't mean the fear of the Lord in the sense of Proverbs, like this healthy reverence of Him and His commands, this wisdom that we live out of. Uh, they, they've already kind of thrown that sort of thing out the window. They've trusted in their own desires. They've trusted in their own way. Uh, that, that fear of the Lord is not present at the moment. I, I mean fearing God in such a way that we refuse to approach Him. That we know that we should no longer come near Him. That we stay away. And we think that we can continue fixing ourselves instead of running to Him. Their eyes are opened. They know that they're naked, not just physically, but spiritually. They're exposed. They're ashamed. They're vulnerable. You wonder why we fear vulnerability in community? Right here. Right here. And so when they hear the sound of Him walking in the cool of the day, they, they hid from His presence. The word for cool of the day would also mean the wind of the day. It's actually the same word that is used when, when God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. And so what used to be a welcome sound, the same wind that filled their lungs, is now a fearful thought. And I want you to see that, that God is very gracious in His approach. Uh, one commentator noted that instead of driving them out of hiding through intimidation, He draws them out of hiding through questions. Where are you? God asks. I was afraid, Adam answers. And then he admits, admits his sin. And at that point, God continues with questions, but but his tone shifts a little bit. It's almost more like a lawyer in a court interrogating a witness to the point of a confession. And in his confession, Adam blames God even as much as he blames the woman. The woman you, you gave me, the woman you gave me, gave me the fruit. There is a riff between the relationship between God and man. And we're going to come back to the to, to the rest of that statement in a second, but I want you to understand that, that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. The, this adversarial, fear-based relationship with the Lord. We are to have a, a, a fear of the Lord in the sense of observing His commandments and knowing that He is God, and we are not absolutely. But a fear of drawing near to Him, a, a fear of Him withholding goodness for Him from us when, when we would truly seek it. A fear of shame and what he would think of us. No. That distance from God that we experience is an effect of the fall and a result of sin. And for that distance to be removed, in order for that fear, that adversarial relationship with God to be removed, we need our sin to be removed. This coming week, we're going to Look in the Discover the Story plan at Genesis 3-11. through 11, And I hope that you're following along with that. If you didn't start last week, start this week. And in chapter 4, we're going to see these two characters named Cain and Lamech. And both of them assume that because that they, they have sinned in some incredibly horrible ways, that there's just no way back into God's grace. But I want you to notice how God deals with Cain specifically in that story. He's, he's gracious to him and he promises to, to protect Cain's life even though Cain sinned incredibly. And over and over throughout Genesis and the rest of the story, God is showing grace to His people when we would think that it was all lost 
And for the distance between us and God to be removed, we need our sin to be removed. And listen, when our sin is removed through Jesus Christ our Savior, our adversarial relationship with God is resolved and we get to come near to Him again. But until then, until we learn to trust Christ for our salvation, we are dead in our sin. We see it in chapter 3 that sin puts us in a fear relationship with our Creator God that only God can relieve through His grace. And so Adam shifts the blame to God, but then he also calls out the woman, and the woman shifts blame to the serpent, and the, the, this created being that like she was given dominion over this, this serpent, but she, he was the one that she followed. And so God starts with this curse on the serpent. And as Adam and Eve gave in to his temptation, they allowed him to enslave them. They sparked this long-standing war with him. And that's the second effect of the fall, this fight of the cosmic enemy. So, God curses the serpent and he says, The Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So the curse starts that he's going to go on his belly and eat dust. It's it's this picture of shame that is beyond restoration. We'll see in Isaiah that... that, uh, that the serpent continues to eat dust even into the new creation. There's hope for the man and the woman, but there's no hope for him. But even more than the physical animal, we see here a cosmic struggle. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There are generations and generations and generations that are engaged in this war, but he uses this singular term. He, the offspring, shall bruise your head. The original serpent. So something generations later is going to happen where that original serpent has his head crushed. And he's going to bruise the heel of that offspring, but his head will be crushed. You're going to inflict some harm, but He will have your head. We'll come back to that in a moment, but for now I want you to see the cosmic struggle. This shows us that the serpent is not just an ordinary snake, and we're reintroduced to him later in the story, in the story of Ezekiel and Revelation. He's identified as Satan and the devil, who we see all throughout the story. And the fall into sin began a war with the enemy of our souls. Man gave him to him once, and we have been giving in to him ever since. Again, God warned Cain, Eve's first offspring, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And Cain gives in and he murders his brother. And for thousands of years, not one person ruled over the sin that was in him. In Genesis 6, we see that the enemy continually entices humanity. And listen to God's assessment of this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. 
And the Lord regretted that He made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made him. That's what drove God to send a worldwide flood. But He saved one family, the family of Noah. That's it. Not because of Noah's own righteousness. We see Noah's lack of righteousness in chapter 10 and the lack of righteousness in his descendants and beyond that. But because of God's own grace and favor. There's a cosmic fight that would destroy our souls that only God can win through His grace. Now we may think at this point that the blame shifting of the man and the woman to the serpent was effective. God cursed the serpent. That's it. Deal with the serpent. Deal with the sin. Everything's easy. Not so fast. In this fight, in these offspring, we also see frustration of the creation mandate. Now when I say creation mandate, I'm talking about the purpose that God gave to man and woman when He created them in chapter 1. Look at that again with me real quickly. Um, Chapter 1 says that God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that it was that everything he had made. God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So man and woman were created to be fruitful and multiply. That's their creation mandate. They were created to have children, and those children would bear the image of God, and and they would be the result of a one-flesh marriage in which the father and mother bore the image of God together. They were to fill the earth and, and subdue it and cultivate the garden and eat the produce of the vegetation. So think about all of that as the backdrop to this curse, okay? Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the curse on the man of the woman 
frustrates everything that God commanded them to do before the fall. It, it doesn't remove the creation mandate. They still have to do everything, but it's now just ten times harder. A thousand times harder. God's mandate, His command on their lives was to be fruitful and multiply. And now to the woman, He says, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. It's not that she won't be fruitful and multiply. It's that it will be painful. Can I get a witness from the mothers out there that it is painful? And I don't know this firsthand. I'll just be honest about that. But I'm told that carrying and giving birth to children is the most painful thing that you could possibly do. When it goes good. It's painful when it goes good. And it's certainly painful when it goes poorly or doesn't work at all. And then it's painful as they bring forth their kids and they're confronted with the fact that their kids are sinners too. And their kids have committed sins against them. And they've committed sins against their kids. And there's nothing more painful than than others who are committing sins against your kids. That's something Eve knew all too well in both of her sons, Cain and Abel. But it wasn't just having kids that would be painful. The creation mandate also included bearing God's image as male and female. And making it was, it was the makings of a one flesh marriage, but now, Genesis 3.16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. If you have the NIV, it might say, uh, your desire shall be for your husband. And, and the word for really is, a, is a, an adversarial term in this context. It's, it's an against. It's contrary to your husband. This is such an important verse to understand the marital, like anything that we have in marital soul care, even just identifying problems in a marriage from the curse. Why is marriage so hard? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Our desires are at war within our marriages. It's an effect of the fall. And the woman uh, wants to have a role in the marriage that she's not been given. And the husband abuses his leadership role that he has been given. And he uses it for his own comfort. And he uses it for his own authority. And it's just a mess. And it plays out in a million ways, but it all comes right back here. And so there's difficult childbearing, difficult marriage relationships, and and, and difficult work. Look at verse 17. He says to Adam, I'm I'm cursing the ground because of you so that thorns and thistles come up and you have to eat by the sweat of your brow. See, work and responsibility were pre-fallen gifts. Toil is the post-fallen curse. Toil is frustration of the purpose that God has given us. If you've ever had one of those weeks where nothing is working in your work, you're experiencing toil. Your, your machinery is skitsing out, your computer is out, schedules aren't going planned, you're a farmer and you're actually dealing with thorns and thistles. Whatever it is, all of it is an effect of the fall. And there's only one who can rescue us from that frustration. Ultimately, the curse on Adam is also a curse on the ground which explains a lot of what we see around us, futility of the created world. Futility of the created world. 
We've already seen a curse on the beasts when God is talking to the serpent. He's cursed above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, but that implies that they're cursed too. Death entered the world. The curse on the land becomes, comes when God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Paul explained to the church in Rome, for the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom for the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Sin has far-reaching effects, doesn't it? It's not just a little apple. It doesn't just affect the unseen spiritual realm. There's a, a close connection to the physical realm as well. And every time we see a tornado or, or earthquake, every time we hear of a wildfire or drought or an invasion of some bug species, we should hear that as the groaning of the creation returning for its creator. Every time you see one of those spotted lanternfly signs, the creation is groaning. This isn't the way that it was supposed to be. And Paul says it affects our bodies too. Our bodies are groaning for redemption. For a glorified state in which we will dwell secure. So sick season plagues every new school year, right? And our livers and our kidneys and our lungs, they wear out and they die. And cancer can threaten any part of our bodies. And, and mental disorders disrupt our ability to think and reason clearly. And, and even a simple lack of sleep, which would have been a part of God's good creation, and the patterns of rest, now has devastating effects on our ability to obey God's commands. And it's not that all of those things are the direct cause of our sin, or the direct result of our sin personally, though they can be, but they are the direct result of sin generally. And the futility of our created bodies and the created world reminds us of the fatality of sin. The fatality of the closed way back. Good verse nine again, 19 again. I'm sorry. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forevermore. Therefore God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. This is what God meant. Sin brings death, physical death, that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You're going to see this genealogy in chapter 5. So-and-so fathered so-and-so, and then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Over and over again, the woman who was the, the mother of all living saw the death of her offspring. Again, in Romans, Paul explains sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
Sin brings physical death, but it also brings spiritual death. Banishment from the the place of close communion with our Creator. Paul explains in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And Genesis 3 shows us why. The essence of the fall is sin. The attempt to be like God and have the benefits of God without God. It's mutiny, it's treason, it's deserving of death. Therefore, the effects of the fall are fear, fight, frustration, futility, and fatality. And that's to be expected when we truly understand the story in that way. No longer are we asking, why do bad things happen to good people? After reading Genesis 3-11, to we're going to walk away with the conclusion, there just are no good people. Not in a God sense. And we're, we're going to learn to ask a new question when looking at our story. Why does anything happen that is good with so much evil in the world? Why would God allow anything good to happen to evil people? And from that better and more humble question, we can be surprised by the grace God gives to Adam and Eve to their descendants, and to us. Even in the darkest day of the story, there's hope. That's where I want to leave you, the expectation of hope. Covering and conquering. Covering and conquering. First, I want you to see the hope of covering. Covering. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Do you remember the man and the woman's first impulse when they realized that they were naked? Cover themselves. Hide from the face of God. They realized rightly that that sin brings shame in the presence of a holy God. And that shame must be covered. But their fig leaves were lame. They were insufficient loincloths. They would not hold up to the elements of the hostile environment outside of Eden. And so in verse 21, God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Garments in place of loincloths. Skins in place of fig leaves. An animal died and the skin covered their nakedness. And this foreshadows later in the story where God's people would have to sacrifice animals and identify with the fact that sin deserves death, but that God provides atonement and pays for sin. And He would clothe the priests. The same word for clothe is in, in, in the, uh, the use of the priests in linen garments that were purified through ceremonial washings. And they would minister in the presence of of God on behalf of His people in the temple, His his dwelling place that was supposed to recall the Garden of Eden. And so even here in the midst of the curse, we have the expectation of hope that God covers the guilt and the shame of His people. He did it for Israel. And He does it for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ today. 
when they were banished from the garden, God gave them skins of animals, but, but there's going to come a day in the future when He welcomes His people into the new heavens and the new earth, and God clothes His people with robes of white. In Revelation, we read, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot His name out of the book of life. I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. And so, reading that verse, we better ask him, "What? how do we conquer then? I want the clothes of white, right? Because we clearly see a cosmic enemy of our souls in Genesis 3, and we clearly see the effects of that and how we keep getting conquered and over and over again. And if, if billions and billions of people have lost their fight to the deceiver, how could we ever defeat him? And the only way to conquer is to join the side of the conqueror. The offspring promised who crushed the head of the serpent. And that's the second expectation of hope in this account of the fall. Conquering. Conquering. Look back at Genesis 3.15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is sometimes known as the first gospel. The first time the hope of Jesus Christ is spoken into the story. And Genesis 3 promises one who will win the fight with the cosmic enemy. And we learn later in the story who he is. He's, he's born of a woman, born of a virgin, free from the stain of Adam's sin. And she called his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And everywhere that Adam failed, he succeeded. He was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. He lived the perfect life that we could not live and He died the death that we deserve to die. The serpent bruised His heel. But He rose again and He conquered the enemy that we could not conquer. He crushed the serpent's head. And He will return again. And the the story tells us that Every enemy will be put under his feet, Satan, and then finally death. Seeing the origin stories of Genesis 3 really shows you just how much we are not the superheroes of the story. And just how much God is who has planned this awesome salvation from the very beginning. There is nothing here to bring about pity that can justify our sin. We had everything that we needed, and then we just rejected it. But God is the hero of the story. So this week, look for the pattern of the descent of sin in your own life. Both on a large scale, but then in individual sins. You can see the pattern play out in tiny little ways over and over and over again. Look for the desires that are at war in your heart. Be warned then of the deadly effects of the fall and turn to the only one who can cover your sin and conquer your enemy. Let's turn to Him now in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, You are holy.
we have rebelled against you. I have rebelled against you. Maybe God would open your eyes to rebellion in your own heart right now. Maybe you're on the first or second or third or even fourth step of the descent into sin. Confess that to him. And confess to him that you are not strong enough to run away from that. But that he would save you from it. And provide you the way of escape. Looking to your Savior. And him alone. Seeing his sufficiency and His grace His victory where you would fail and His power in you to overcome the sin that rules your heart Father we need you so much see our desperation for you. Lord, I see my desperation for you. I mean, do not think of sin as a light and trivial thing. But to with urgency turn and run to the only one who can save. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour, every moment, every breath, we need teach our hearts to turn to you. Let's sing. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.